Before you ever start anything from a sick fuck, you should do an ardas. Ardas, ik omkar, Sri Wahi Guruji ki fate, Sri Pagoti ji sahi war, Sri Pagoti ji ki paatshahi dasvi, Pritham Pagoti simar kai guru nanak lai te aai, Phir Angad Gurti Amardas Ramdasai hoi sahai arjan har govindanao simaro Sri Harai, Sri Har Krishan te aai hai, jis dhthe sabd khujai teg bahadar simri hai, karnao nidavita hai, sab thayana ji sahai, Dasvi paatshah, Sri Guru Govind Singh sahib ji sab thayana ji sahai, Dasa paatshah hiyan di jod, Tantan Sri Guru Granth Sahib Ji O Maharaj Ji De Paathi Dhar Da Tiyan Tar Ke Khalsa Ji Bulna Ji Sri Vahiguru Panjaam Piyariyaan Chohzab Jade Chali Muktiyaan Hathiyaan Jappiyaan Tappiyaan Jina Naam Jappiyaan Vand Shakiyaan Dek Chalai Teg Vahi Dek Ke Andit Kita Tinnaam Piyariyaan Sachiyariyaan Di Kamai Da Tiyan Tar Ke Khalsa Ji Bulna Ji Sri Vahiguru जिन्ना सिंगा सिंगनिया ने धर्म हेत सीस दिते बंद बंद कटाए खोपरियां लुहाईयां चरखरियां ते चरे आरिया नाल चराए गए गुरुद्वारेयां दी सेवा ले कुर्बानियां कीतियां धर्म नहीं हारिया सिखी केसा सुवासा नाल निभाही तिन्ना दी कमाई दा ध्यान तरके खालसा जी बुलना जी श्री वाहेगुरु पंजा ताकता ते सरबत गुरुद्वारेयां दा ध्यान तरके खालसा जी बुलना जी श्री वाहेगुरु प्रथमे सर्वत खालसा जी की अरदास है जी सर्वत खालसा जी को वाहिग्रु 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 चिताव चिताव उनका सदका सर्व सुखोवे जहाँ जहाँ खालसा जी साहेब ताहन ताहन रचे रहायत देख तेख फते बिर्द की पैज पांथ की जीत श्री साहेब जी सहाय खालसा जी के बोल वाले बोलना जी श्री वाहिग्रु सिखानु सिखी दान केस दान रहत दान विवेक दान विसाह दान प्रोसा दान दाना सिर दान नाम दान श्री अमरसर साहिब जी के दर्शनिश्नान चौंकिया चंडे बुंगे जुगो जुगे टल तरम का जयकार खालसा जी बुलना जी श्री वाहिग्रु सिखाना मन्नीवा मत उची मत पत्ता रखा आप वाहिग्रु हे अकाल पुरख अपने पंथ के सदा सहायता धार जो श्री ननकाना साहेब के होर गुरद्वार गुरधाम जिन्हों तो पंथ में विछोरिया गया है खुले दर्शन दीदार सेवा संभाल का दान खालसा जी को बख्शो हे निमाण मान नितान न्योट्या ओट धन धन सत गुरु आप जी देजूर बेनती अरदस करते हुए नौजवानी बुक क्लब की आरंभता की अरदस करते हैं जी महाराज आप जी सू सारू बख्शिश करो किपा करो लिखारी बीबी सिमरजीत कौर त किपया मेहर भरिया हथ रखियो सैफरन सलवेशन की किताब पढ़द होया सू आप जी के लड़ के नाल लाना अखर वाधा घाटा पुलच कमुआफ करनी सरबत्त कारज रास करने सही प्यारे मिल जरा मिलिया तेरा नाम चेतावे नानक नाम चढ़ती कला तेरे भाने सरबत्त वाहेगुरु जी का खालसा वाहेगुरु जी की फतेह सत श्री अकाल देख देख पंथ की राज करेगा खालिस्तान so without further ado we're going to do some reading of saffron salvation today what we're actually going to do is read just the uh, i wanted to do the acknowledgements and the prologue and then actually get into just reading the first couple of pages, the first chapter and whatnot, 
um, to take us forward. Those of you who've got a copy of the book will hopefully be reading along with us at home and wherever else you are. Okay, so the dedication, which is the acknowledgements in this book that come from the author, Simrajit Kaur, who is an absolutely wonderful woman, one of those eccentric characters you meet, which is why she's an author and a fiction writer in the first place. One of those unsung heroes that you never hear about in the world, particularly in the sick world, who, who just lived her life and dedicated her life to doing the best things she could uh, and doing as much as she could. And so, you know, I dedicate the launch of this book club, not only, you know, because we're doing the first book, but I dedicate the launch of this book club to her and to all the writers that she has inspired, of which I consider myself one. So Simrajit, whenever you watch this video back, big up to you, respect to you for the rest of your life. Uh, let's read the dedication uh, from Simrajit Kaur from my father, Jaginder Singh, and my mother, Harpajan Kaur, fearless, spiritual warriors all their lives activists with a big heart for seva, undying love of the Guru, and big dreams for their nation. For all our Sikh ancestors, without whose sacrifices we would not be here, for giving us the chance in this life to do the right thing. The prologue uh, in Amritsar is one of the holiest places on earth. Great Sufi, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Jain, and Sikh saints walk the marvel of the holiest place. Millions of devout pilgrims fall to their knees before the Golden Temple. In Amritsar, once the Golden Temple rose high, open to all sides to the world from every direction. A God who is everywhere and embraces everyone. A love that is forever. In Amritsar, once stood serene sacred waters of Amrit, holy waters of healing, of blessings eternal. Amritsar was the place where freedom fighters standing against oppression gathered through the ages. Anyone could visit this free spirit in Amritsar. The great noble prophet of the Sikhs, Guru Arjan Devji, wrote the divine words for the Guru Granth Sahib, the holiest guide, holiest guru of the Sikhs there. The foundations of the Golden Temple were blessed by the honored Sufi saint Miami hundreds of years ago. The history of the Sikhs is integral to Amritsar. It is their heart their soul. Through the Mughal Islamic Inquisition, Sikh pilgrims gathered and prayed in secret, never abandoning their beloved Amritsar, even if it meant death. Freedom fighters gathered in Amritsar throughout the Afghan persecutions, throughout the British persecutions. Nehru, first Prime Minister of India, and Mohandas Gandhi said that the Sikhs and Amritsar were the last bastion of democracy. Amritsar was a sovereign place of its own. It would always be that. The Akal Takht stands tall, an insignia of freedom from persecution. News reached Guru Hargobind Sahib that his father, Guru Arjan Devji, the noble, was tortured to death for his pacifist, humanitarian, spiritual movement against the Mughal Empire. Guru Hargobind Sahib waged war on the Mughal tyrants that had destroyed a peace movement with oppression. He then built the Akal Takht. Fortress from oppression, bows to none. Amritsar is a country of its own. Sovereign from inception and within is the timeless throne of God, the eternal Akal Takht. Bowing before no empire, no matter how often the boundaries, lines, fences, borders changed. No matter how the names and disguises the tyrants change, even as they manage to secure places on so-called international security councils. The Akal Takht is the last sign of freedom. The warrior saint people, the sex, are people of their own. On 4th June, 
the anniversary of Guru Arjan Dev Ji's martyrdom, Amritsar is brimming with pilgrims. Thousands upon thousands of pilgrims gathered. Thousands upon thousands of pilgrims gather from all corners of the Punjab and the world. The burning heat, the blistering sun of June doesn't deter their devotion. The greatest, sweetest son of Punjab came forward. Their noble prophet who led a pacifist humanitarian and spiritual revolution was tortured to death unforgivably. His sacrifice was eternal. Even if it is burning and hot, as it is always, is in June, they try and remind themselves in the uncomfortable heat as they wipe the sweat from their faces that their beloved prophet was burned to death, tortured in the most cruel, inhuman way. This heat, burning their naked feet, is nothing. They brave the hot plains of Punjab and the burning marble of Amritsar to pay homage to their beloved love. Some come not wearing shoes, even on the buses, even as their feet burn on the sands of Punjab in June. On the 4th of June, 1984, the destiny and lives of the Sikhs in the world was to change forever. Those Sikhs in the Akal Takht, the immortal throne of justice, used their last breath to save the holy world of the Sikhs. Those trapped all around the world wanted to rush to save their beloved Amritsar as the Indian army invaded and bombed Amritsar. That's the prologue. We're going to read now the start of the book, starting on page seven. We're going to read right up until the end of page 13. Now, if you want to read this alone, feel free. If my voice grates you or you don't like it, perfectly fine. Read alone. This isn't going to be a regular thing where I'm doing a reading and a whole audiobook recording of the book. I just thought it was a nice way to launch the book club and do a live reading if we can. I'm going to try and do the best I can with the reading. Those of you reading along, uh, hopefully I could do it justice. So we're on chapter one. I salute immortal God. London, April 1994. I get up at 6am, wash my face quickly, catch the bus, ignoring the tramps and commuters. And then I sit amongst the shoes. All sorts of shoes come. Pretty, strappy sandals with fancy, thin heels. The sort that make you wonder how women walk in them. Shoes that are smelly and worn. My cheeks are adorned by many shoes briefly before I rearrange them. Shoes that are from busy people and those who are desperate. Some are flung at me. Some are placed politely at nose level on the boards. Some are downright dirty. And I wonder how people can wear their shoes like this. Shoes from the arrogant from the humble, and each shoe I wipe with my scarf. I try not to think of him as I bow down towards the shoes. It is one wipe with the scarf, and then I put them back. My scarf gets dirty by the second. The owners of the shoes do not see who they have thrown their shoes at, nor do they care. They are too busy seeking something else. He has left me amongst the shoes. I weep silently. Then I know the shoes, the feet of the people whose shoes I wipe. Then I know the shoes, the feet of the people whose shoes I wipe aren't those of the people I see. Once an arrogant woman threw her shoes off at me and I was tempted to spit on her shoes instead. 
I remind myself that they aren't shoes that are dirty or need a clean. I put each to my forehead. I cry silently, sometimes lost in the congregation, lost amongst their shoes, for I deserve no high position in life. But sometimes my tears don't stop. I always wonder if he will leave his shoes here. As I put a shoe to my forehead, a tear slips on the shoe, and I quickly wipe it away, trying not to think of him. For each shoe of the pilgrims I wipe, I know I can forget him and help him. London, April 1984. My father put me on the aeroplane. He was on a night shift and gave me a lift in the dull rain that had sucked up the sky and our entire neighborhood with it. I didn't understand why he felt the need. He was throwing me into the lion's den anyway. I was perfectly capable of taking the underground train, I grumbled. He was intent on being silent and not responding. Instead, he kept whispering to God, whispers of prayers running through like a silent stream slipping away. Only his silver beard flickering showed he was still alive. Only the cars gushing past on the cold motorway reminded me that I was still alive. He's in a mood. I was the one who should be in a mood, being sent thousands of miles away to meet a perfect stranger. All he said after his chance, as if he were reading the weather forecast at the airport, was to remind me in his wink, handing me a packet of mints, it takes 8.4 million lives, Sean. I turned around, not caring about philosophy and not caring for the packet of mints. It's not like the mints would save me from a fate worse than death, going to a fly-infested country to marry a perfect stranger. Your aunt will pick you up from the airport, he shouted reassuringly. I was the perfect daughter, I reminded myself. No daughter born and brought up in England would have done what I was about to do. But it didn't make me feel any better. How good a daughter I was. I hated my family. I hated the thought of going to India. And now I hated the idea of going to this meeting. I thought I was going to throw up. I decided to open the mints and start eating them. I wished later I hadn't been fed up with my father, but by then it was too late. Once, just once, if I hadn't been too busy with doing the right thing, I should have asked him about the 8.4 million lives. It was a spiritual truth we lived by. I realized later that you didn't ask, you didn't ask the right questions to understand the spiritual truths, not until it was too late. Sprays of golden ransky dust shot at the clouds. I couldn't look up far as spats of dirt cut, dirt cut across my face. It was my welcome to his bend. His village told me how I wasn't meant to be with him. Showers of ransky landed on my shoulders and wound, wound into my nose before any of the dancing dolls around me could kick it back. Sheaves bowed in the distance to the seduction of the dolki drum. The football match of revenge between sky and dancers continued. Mortals were spat out in the land of the gods as frenzied dolls, warriors, saints, and the not-so-saintly danced together. I had to move with the dancing dolls and move fast or I'd be under them. It was Bisaki, the birth of the Sikhs, party time for the farmers. I tried to find peaceful, steady ground after the bus ride, but there was nothing but roller coasters of shoulders that snaked around, capturing everyone. Crowds were dangerous, my aunt warned. Girls were kidnapped in crowds. 
A girl must always hold on to someone, especially in a festival. No matter how holy the occasion, the bandits were always about. I could hear it all. Aunt had disappeared and I just didn't have the energy to care about it. I wanted to enjoy the few moments of happiness before the pathetic meeting. I had never seen Visakhi in Punjab before. Some wore bright turbans, whilst others were naked in short hair. The farm hands were, uh, had almost finished their chores. Visakhi had begun. I was pushed against the Ludhiana Amrad Sarbas only three hours before. Ransiki was supposed to be near my mind, fizzed in dusty anger. I hopped on one foot, trying to get a foothold. Passengers behind me threatened to crush me to death. My foot could barely stay on the step of the bus that began moving of its own will. It was from then that I grew to dislike the stranger. I was forced to run Sikhi because of him. There was a mad scramble of voices. Amritsar, Jalandar, Fagwara, wheezing and droning that theirs was the bus for us. Faces creased and eyes focused. They used their whistles. Their hands waved you forward. Intent you get on their bus, alone with the stench of urine, knocking you blind as you tried to get near the right bus. The Faguara bus was coercively attractive. Faguara. Until my mind jiggled. No, Amritsar, get out of my way, you twit, I thought silently, refusing to listen to the hypnotic Faguara weezer. Hurry, sister. I'm not your bloody sister. I wanted to say, but the rude push-up was needed as someone behind me pushed at my bottom. The bus had started moving. Amritsar, Amritsar drowned in the dismal bus conductor's song and the legs and arms fighting against my bottom. Jump, Sharon, jump. Now a whole load of passengers joined in. Jump, Sharon. I was soon clammed up amongst the bodies who struggled for me as we stood on the steps of the moving bus. I was so close to missing meeting the stranger. I hated him at that moment for helping me become a spectacle on the Punjab roadways bus heading to Amritsar. This is normal, quite normal. I breathed out the leftover whiffs of urine, jumping in my nose, pulling my scarf up again, trying to remember I had never had to come back here. All very normal. Hurry up, Sharon. My aunt hollered, hitting a scrawny man behind her as I pushed past the man barely clinging onto the outside of the bus. Hands grabbed my shoulders and pushed, pulled me up as feet hit into my heels from behind and someone's hand pushed my back forward. The bus rushed forward, swallowing everything. We skeltered viciously around crushed cars and graveyards of giant trucks. The hips and bottoms of the passengers grew into one flying mess. Gold tinsel ropes with black blood and cut out prayers, as well as the doe eyes of a Bombay actress, poked through the smashed windscreen that had been religiously tied by the truckers. This was all the funeral attire that remained. The bus's horn boomed and never stopped booming, reminding everyone that it ruled the Jitti Road. I tried not to keep falling on top of the man next to me, wondering where the driver was and if everyone was okay. Oh, they all end up like that, said the man next to me, second-guessing my thoughts. The truck driver will be dead or in jail, all on drugs, you know. He carried on with his fatal commentary, intent on putting his elbow to my hip. It didn't matter how much I huffed, gave dirty looks, or didn't respond to his analytical commentary, he didn't budge. His elbow orgy with my elbow carry, with my hip carried on, and I couldn't move away. I knew then... I was in India. 
beloved home of my father and mother, beloved home of my ancestors. But no bloody space. Just bodies, arms, legs, shit, dust and scooter, rickshaws everywhere. Life is cheap here, the lewd philosopher pushed on as I turned my head away from him. Moving my head was all I had of myself left in a country that swallowed you up in seconds. My aunt was pushing back three passengers hanging from the rails who kept swinging her way. I just had the elbow of the pervert next to me to contend with. Why the hell couldn't he come and see us? Isn't it traditional that the boys side come and see us? I shouted to my aunt as soon as she'd sidled near to, nearer to me. She just smiled smugly, back still wrestling with stopping her knees, being knocked by the metal seats ahead of her. She didn't care to answer me. We were on the bus that would get us to Ransiki and that was progress in her eyes. My aunt, who had pushed two people onto one seat, nabbed a couple with her elbow, fought with a scrawny man and joyously stomped on several feet, simply refused to answer me. She was a force to be reckoned with on the Punjab Roadways bus. She had many advantages, like her being fat and better dressed with no remorse in her take-no-prisoners attitude. Every pothole dishevelled us from our seats. Organs we'd never felt before let us know they existed. I looked through the dirt-encrusted windows and wondered if I could see him. I don't want to bloody well get married, my head spitted with every bump of the bus. I hoped my vehement telepathy reached him. Just three hours to go, shouted Auntie, spinning a shiny mile through her maroon lipstick, and I knew what my meditation for three hours was going to be. I don't intend to marry you, I fumed at the metal bars. I could barely grasp. I will not marry you, my head drummed to siren songs and hymns rattling through the tin can bus. God's praises, sirens of Bombay, nothing got in the way of the Punjab roadways bus horn. No way. No marriage. No bloody arranged marriage. I tried to close my eyes and think of what my mother and father had said. I had to find the true love of my life. They'd never be good parents unless they forced me to think about these things before it was too late. They could never die peacefully. They had said it again and again. There was nothing but shame in not having a happily married, settled life. I know they meant well. A daughter had her duties. I had had this drummed into me for years and years, but I couldn't understand how saying no to a few men in Birmingham and Huddersfield could put me on a bus in a dirty, mad country going to meet one of the most eligible bachelors of northern Punjab. I mean, it wasn't as, it wasn't as if I'd said no to a hundred men. It wasn't like I was saying no to marriage forever. <laughs> My parents were told that I was going off the rails. I simply had to be brought before more eligible bachelor material and say yes, quickly, before I ran out of time. I won't go. I came here for a holiday. Okay, Sharon, but you know, he's a nice guy. One of the most sought after bachelors, you know. I'm English. Auntie, we're English. How can I end up with a guy from Punjab? They all speak in weird accents here. I closed my eyes, intent on removing everything that they brainwashed me with. Aunts, uncles, grannies, but the one thing I couldn't remove was the hope of salvation. Anyway, it smells here, auntie. It smells rotten. 
Auntie looked away, uninterested, as if her olfactory senses were totally immune, but I could tell that she too had a problem with the country. He'll come with you to England. You're marrying him if you like him, not the whole damn country. And that was the deal. Five minutes, 10 minutes, Sharon, that's it. Samosa, tea, and then we just leave, okay? I thought to myself that I didn't want to be alone for the rest of my life, but the thought of marrying a perfect stranger seemed too repugnant. Bachelors don't grow on trees, my aunt had argued the night before. I didn't care if they did. I wouldn't go looking on any trees for them. I looked down at my suit. I had chosen a dull, plain brown suit that made me look as if I had malaria. <laughs> I was quite content to present myself before the eligible bachelor of Amritsar in the brown suit. You know, people from north of the rivers, they are quite fast, sharp, the vill villagers gossiped in my aunt's bend. Apparently, I was sandwiched in the middle of the rivers. I didn't know if it meant that where my people came from, they were less stupid or not. Anyway, I pointed out to my aunt I was from Southall Hounslow border, and it was dad and she who came from the middle of these rivers. We only have one river in London, the Thames. And it doesn't matter, does it, which side you're from? She looked away from me, not answering. I discovered that it was a big deal for, married, for people to marry daughters beyond their region. The Madja, Malwa, and Doaba were sandwiched between the three rivers left in the shell of Punjab after partition. Villagers from each side of the rivers had resolute stories about each other, proven scientific facts about the differences between them. The legendary Malawai Babi, who turned out to be a disastrous sister-in-law. The legendary sharp people of Madja. He, the one eligible bachelor, the stranger, was an Amritsariya from Madja. They were more clever than us, and it seemed us Dwabians were dimmer. They've rebuilt this bit of the road, shouted one zombie passenger across into space. I am not going to marry you, the song rang, and it felt really appropriate. I won't, I vowed to myself. The song was a sign. But the singer had been asked to marry the guy she was saying no to. I hadn't even passed the arranged marriage test. No one had asked for my hand in marriage. The heat spiked us, melting us second by second. Wide-eyed and rubbery-tongued, we clenched thighs and buttocks trying not to fall upon each other as the bus hurtled forward. The lewd man next to me sat even wider, legs splayed, taking advantage of every minute to fall into my hips with every turn of the bus. I tried to elbow him back from the side of my uh, from the side of my face. I felt his slimy smile cut through me and my perspiring. I had to blink the noise and heat out, and this seemed to turn him on further. He had a veterinary science degree and was one semester from graduating, the stranger bachelor. I knew he was tall. Then I decided I couldn't care less whether he was tall or a dwarf. I wasn't going to marry anyone from India. I was going to get out of the heat and flies and dust and all the people staring at you wherever you went. Some tin can Mauritius puffed escaping the bus. Not so fortunate crushed tin cans lay strewn around the GT road. One second too late and the giant bus might have joined the piling graveyard. I knew he was from a good family and this seemed to be enough to satisfy my dad. 
The fact that he was a nice boy seemed to give a great deal of delight to my mother too, even though she'd never met him. That's us with our first reading. That takes us up to the end of page 13 and the beginning of chapter two, from where I hope you all have lots of fun reading forwards and check it all out. Thank you very much for your time and for joining the Nordjorni Book Club. Hope to speak to you all very, very soon. Take care of yourselves. Make sure you look after each other and look after yourselves, obviously, at this time as well.